August 6, 1890. William Kemmler becomes the first man killed by the electric chair. Suck it, second man killed by the electric chair. Welcome to The Revisionists. I'm Brian Flynn. I'm Zach Powers. Oh, it's going to make it up. I got all croaky there. Not a good... Mm. Puberty, guys. Puberty. Overcome with emotion and me being on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, listeners, that is our guest. Join us from Chicago. Zach's co-host of Stage of Fools. Uh, fabulous, fabulous person. Please welcome the actress Shannon Camp, everyone. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, this is a first for us, sort of our first Re- uh, remote recording of The Revisionist. Well, thank you for being here. At your own apartment. At your own apartment, in the comfort of your own home. Listeners, if you're new to the show, each episode we look at a topic from history. One of us presents the official version of events, and another one of us comes up with the alternate history. And whatever story wins, we accept as true history. Uh, Last episode, if you were listening, we talked about the gallant young lad John Lawrence and the true history of that hunk of man one out that is devastating oh, for my. me because that is the first time one of my alternate histories did not make the cut I, and i'm uh, still a little upset about it i know i think that's why my voice cracked in the intro <laughs> i'll never have the confidence to do this show like i once did well, when I, mean, I was batting a thousand i think it was hemingway who said life breaks us all but some are stronger in the broken places mm. take that to heart i guess <laughs> yes i I'll, I'll take great solace in the wisdom of a man who eventually killed himself. <laughs> <laughs> I left out that part. But you know, Zach, it's not your fault. Lawrence is just so lovable that it's mm-hmm. hard not to root for the true version of him. This episode, we are discussing Alexander Hamilton, who, of course, in the last years, because of the fabulous, fabulous musical about his life. Uh, Believe the hype, people. Don't be the guy who's like, I'm not going to listen to it because everybody likes it. Mm-hmm. Buy into it. Submit. Buy Hamilton today. It's okay, incredibly, yeah. incredibly worth it. And in fact, Shannon is the person who, more than anybody else, is the reason <laughs> I was on the Hamilton uh, bandwagon at least as early as I was mm-hmm. which is to say maybe September of last year but yeah I'm not I'm not proud of this but I had actually already listened to a bootleg copy of the show well before the soundtrack came out so <laughs> that wasn't the coolest thing I've ever done in terms of obeying copyright laws but I well, really have been a fan. Well, I regret for a to tell you now. that Lynn Manuel Miranda has been listening to this podcast, and your tickets for November have oh. been revoked. <laughs> you are not going. Okay, buddy. Hey, hey, that's a real. You spit in the air; it's going to land on your face. Because if my tickets are revoked, then so are yours. Just yours. I'm the one who got you into that show. It's just yours. Well, no, I, I want it on air. I want it on the record uh, that Zach owes me big time. Guys, this is not a court of law. None of these rules apply. <laughs> and hey, I don't. If both of you lose your tickets just because Lin Manuel Miranda is listening, I'll take that. Yeah, me too. I'm fine with. He that. does love podcasts. So, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I got us into the room where it happens. That's all. <laughs> well, this episode, Shannon, you are telling the true story. And I'll be doing the alternate. Indeed. So if we're all ready to begin, because we have a lot of ground to cover this episode. Yeah, and I'm actually going to wrap the entire thing. I think I mentioned mm-hmm. that beforehand. I told you guys mm, that perfect. I'm yeah, wrap my entire summary. Brian, no, if no, you'll provide all... the beatbox. Yep, third, <laughs> 35 solid minutes of rapping. <laughs> Talk about the whitest kids you know. Um, 
<laughs> you said that like it was the greatest slam ever. It's a sketch comedy group, right? I, I know, I loved it. Uh, it's a topical reference to a show that was canceled years ago. Can you handle it? Oh my god. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, I did briefly want to say before I jump in. Uh, telling my version of Hamilton's history, uh, it's going to feel like I'm paraphrasing the musical, but I promise I'm not. The thing is, the source that I went to for the vast majority of uh, the summary of Hamilton's life was the amazing biography Hamilton by Ron Chernow, mm-hmm. which Lin-Manuel Miranda also used as the basis for his musical of the same name. So it's not that I'm copying Lin, it's that Lin and I both copied the same person. Uh, so I just wanted to throw that in there. And of course, uh, if you've seen that book at Barnes & Noble or whatever bookstore you frequent, you've seen how incredibly uh, thick and long that book is. So... Uh, yeah, it's sitting on my bookshelf really right now. I've had to condense a lot. Yeah, I've had to condense a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. So at times you're like, oh, she really oversimplified that. And to that complaint, I would say, yeah. yes, I, I did. The people who listen to this <laughs> yeah, comedy <was> <laughs> history podcast are looking for very detailed, well-researched accounts of the actual histories. Where we've talked about <laughs> Benjamin Franklin being a robot powered by syphilis. Yeah. Look, there's been a lot of <laughs> Hamilton hype in the year 2016, very, and very I true. feel a certain amount of pressure to live up to that. Can you blame me? Mm. Well, Shannon, if you're all set, go ahead and take it away. Alexander Hamilton. You can start singing the song in your head right now. Already done. Uh, he was born in Yeah, we're going to bet it Charles... under the entire, entire podcast. <laughs> Just the first track on a loop. So Alexander Hamilton was born in either 1755 or 1757. Uh, by his own accounts, there's some discrepancy in the years there, although at times he may have been lying that he was a different age pretending he was younger than he was to actually make himself more hireable um and as a servant after his mother died anyway he was born in charleston which is the (laughs) capital of the was was youth a big like selling point in teenaged servants at the time well i mean if they are teenage servants then youth is a selling point Mm-hmm. The apprentice page rolls that he was seeking out at the time, yes. I know that's a very bizarre idea, but we genuinely don't know when he was born because he listed it different on different documents. Mm-hmm. And people think are not sure. He could have had reasons for faking older in certain times and faking younger at certain times. Yeah, I mean, like Remember how I said cigarettes. I was going to keep this as undetailed as possible? <laughs> I'm glad we failed that instantly. <laughs> um. I have not even gotten to the location of his birthplace. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he was born in uh, Charleston, which is the capital of Nevis, which is one of the Leeward Islands, so the British West Indies, and um, he would move to a few Brit- different British West Indies during his childhood. His mom was named Rachel Fossett, and she had actually left her husband and the son they had together and moved to this town because she had inherited property from her father, and his dad, we think was a Scotsman named James Hamilton. But there is also some dispute over whether or not James Hamilton was Alexander's actual biological father. So right, make of that what you will. Uh, Alex had an older brother named James Jr. And notably, the family had 34 books among their possessions, which inspired an early love of reading and writing in Alexander. And that was something that was really 
rare at the time, especially for where they lived, although both James and Rachel had a certain amount of education, although they had become kind of social outcasts for quote-unquote adultery. So because the children were illegitimate, they weren't even allowed to go to school, uh, like enroll in the Christian schools in the area. So they had a Jewish tutor come teach them in their home, which again is like a really unusual thing. And I point these things out because I do think they they really shaped Alexander and his worldview. I think so much of his politics really stems from this time of his life. Mm-hmm. Either way, James left Rachel and the children uh, supposedly to spare her the charge of bigamy because she wasn't officially divorced from her husband. But I have my doubts. I think this is a classic deadbeat dad situation. Yeah. Not that long after... Rachel and Alexander both took very sick, and Rachel did not recover. She died of a fever, Mm -hmm. and her husband came back and took everything, leaving James Jr. and Alexander pretty much completely destitute. Although, again, super fascinating to me, a family friend bought the 34 books and returned them to Alexander's possession, which, aside from being an incredibly beautiful gesture... Definitely continues to connect Alexander to that lifelong love of the written word. Mm -hmm. James Jr. and Alexander were briefly adopted by their cousin, Peter Lytton, who Mm -hmm. unfortunately committed suicide shortly after that. And then the boys were separated. James Jr. became an apprentice to a carpenter, I believe, uh, some sort of like working class person. And Alexander uh, got a job clerking at Beekman and Kruger, who were traders. They traded with New England. And one of the things they traded was slaves. So Alexander Hamilton was involved and employed by the slave trade. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit because it's been a real point of contention. I've seen quite a few, you know, spirited online debates about the morality of a musical like Hamilton glorifying this person, these people who either owned slaves or were involved in the slave trade. Mm -hmm. But I think that's probably a fair critique for certain characters, maybe even George Washington. But really for Alexander Hamilton, I do want to say, based on my readings of his life, I do think that he was staunchly anti-slavery. You know, when he was a child growing up in the West Indies, he saw slaves being tortured and murdered and just, you know, every horrible thing you can imagine. And we should know, of course, that... Prior to the play Hamilton, none of these people had been glorified in any way mm-hmm. in American yeah. culture. That was, so it's uh, definitely all Lin-Manuel yeah. Miranda's fault. Uh, <laughs> don't get me started. But I, I do want to say um, this affected him for the rest of his life and throughout the rest of his political career. We'll see him make a few attempts at abolition. I don't think it was the at the top of his priorities list. And of course, I hate to use like historical perspective as an excuse for dismissing Mm. genuine racism. I don't think Hamilton was racially enlightened by today's standards at all. And that's, you know, that's never something I'm going to try to defend. But I will say that for his time, he truly was anti-slavery growing up. Uh, in Chernow's book, it even says he had a friend who was a slave boy. I mean, I don't want to put like a romantic hallmark spin on something that's genuinely terrible. Right. But I do think that Alexander and Eliza Hamilton were, for their time, 
I mean, aside from like someone like John Lawrence, they were about as anti-slavery as it, Using, he didn't have a lot of choices. He really didn't. And that's something that has kind of frustrated me. I think I've seen some of this online discourse kind of gloss over the fact that like, although we can't excuse people's perspectives because of history and I'm not going to excuse the racism of any of these people, you that doesn't free them from their historical circumstances and the true circumstances of his life were was that he was destitute and a child. Absolutely. So a huge hurricane basically destroyed all of the town that uh, Alexander was living in at the time. It was not his birthplace. He had moved. And he wrote an essay that was published about the experience that was published by like a local paper, a local publication. I don't really know what to call it. But anyway, this essay moved people so much that it really garnered a lot of public attention and money was raised uh to book alexander passage to america finally we're getting our founding father to where the action is we are now (laughs) through the first song in the musical hamilton (laughs) and we only have 39 songs to go Mm -hmm. so buckle up everybody Uh, I almost said Lynn arrived in America. Whoa. (laughs) Alexander arrived in America and actually lived in New Jersey where he attended uh, what was basically a college prep school equivalent of today. And then he did transfer to King's College in New York City. He started really getting his first taste of like true fame when he wrote a few essays refuting like loyalist uh, things think pieces uh, <laughs> that had been published in the paper perhaps most notably uh, the, the farmer refuted which the yeah, the, yeah a guy named which, samuel seabury who was writing under the pen name a dot farmer i believe yep interesting taste of alexander's duality though there was a riot on the king's college campus um that got really out of control and dangerous the college president was a loyalist um, in a time when the public opinion was really, in this area at least, really starting to turn against the British. And so this mob was trying to kill the college president, and Alexander saved his life. Mm. Even though, you know, fundamentally their politics could not have been more different. Right, so this was a political riot, not like a football victory-induced riot. No, no, no one was setting couches on fire in the street that I know of. Okay, this was not like a Quidditch riot. Mm -hmm. I don't know what what sport they played in. The Quidditch riots that always happened in Harry Potter. (laughs) Oh my God, that would be amazing. Sorry. That's the Quidditch riot. That's book four. Well, yeah, but that's not because of the Quidditch match. It's because... It's kind of because of the Quidditch match. Everybody fired up. Everybody's high on Victor Crumb. Oh, I knew I would find a way to work Harry Potter in there. It just comes to me. (laughs) Although you guys brought up a Quidditch. So Uh, after Alexander left school, he jumped right into the volunteer militia. And where he was the seeker, of course, (laughs) (laughs) he was attracting the attention of all these higher ups and they were all inviting him to be their aide. But he turned down like four or five invitations from these incredibly high up people until uh, here comes the general, Mr. George Washington, <laughs> came knocking on his door. It's a miracle I haven't been working more Track musical eight. lyrics <laughs> into this uh, thing. We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, so he had a lot of really high-level duties, uh, including 
intelligence, uh, diplomacy, negotiations, including negotiations among the army officers, which is super important because after the war ends, um, Hamilton is going to find himself kind of being opposed by and trying to help these exact same soldiers, mm-hmm. many of whom did not receive the pay that they had been promised and were basically destitute. So Alexander's fate and that of the common soldier was just always intertwined for pretty much his entire life, I would say. Um, and their plight was really, really important to him. Um, so I think the negotiations among the army was something that he was particularly adept at and something that would shape his politics. Something we briefly touched on in our Valley Forge episode uh, was Hamilton negotiating with General Gates for more supplies at Valley Forge and failing, in fact. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I'm glad I don't have to touch on that then because we still have lots more. Oh, yes. Uh, So Hamilton, during this time, uh, became close with a couple other key figures besides George Washington, who really trusted him and put Hamilton in charge of a lot of his correspondence and important speeches. Um, One being the Marquis de Lafayette, who you guys already covered, and the other being John Lawrence, who was the subject of your most recent Mm -hmm. episode preceding this one. And I wanted to weigh in on the Hamilton-Lawrence gay controversy from last episode. Okay. Uh, Of course... With the precursor that obviously we'll never actually know, I know, Um, I'm of two minds on this because on the one hand, people did just write to each other in much more affectionate terms than we use in our casual personal correspondence now. Right. On the other hand, there is something to the fact that their writing, which I've read a lot of their letters, has so many like winking Greek allusions. (laughs) (laughs) The Schuyler sisters would employ similar allusions a few times, seemingly to allude to sexual things, not between them, obviously, but between them and Alexander, like the whole joke about, oh, if you really admired the Greeks so much, then you would, you know, share Alexander with me. I'm paraphrasing a little from one of Angelica's letters, but I'm barely paraphrasing. So, you know, it was like a cultural reference for people at the time, way more so than it is now. So totally. it very well may have been that, I mean, obviously they could never have been open. And that was a kind of winking way of referencing the fact that they did have some sort of romantic or sexual connection. So I think it's a definite possibility, but I also am not totally sold. And, Interesting. And I think though. we can all agree that if it did happen, those two, it would have been incredibly hot. I will say they were both like extremely good looking men, which mm-hmm. actually takes us to my next point <laughs> and our next song. <laughs> um, so in 1780, which actually kind of happens slightly before slash in the midst of everything we've been talking about mm-hmm. um, simultaneously, let's say, Alexander was a huge hit with the ladies. Alexander loved the ladies, and the ladies loved Alexander. And honestly, I can't believe that because he was an extremely good-looking man. I mean, I think even from, like, old-fashioned portraits and statues, which usually make everyone look so hideous, (laughs) you can tell that he was a really good-looking dude. So That Franklin portrait on the 100 doesn't do anything for you? That's not, <laughs> no? Hmm. You don't want I mean, to, to each their own, I guess. 
I mean, I just like it because it's a hundred dollar bill. I am getting off on it, but just because of how rich I am. Oh, <laughs> uh, the Royals on E. Uh, yeah, if you want to hear me talk some salacious trash, tune into Zach and I's, you know, other podcast. So, in 1780, Alexander meets two women who. Basically, I would argue were the two most important women in his life. And that was Elizabeth Schuyler and her older sister, Angelica Schuyler Church. And I do want to point out, in the musical, the love triangle between these three comes about because Angelica is single and she meets Alexander first and she's romantically interested in him, but she feels that she has financial obligations to her family. That is just... Uh, the musical is pretty true to what actually happened in most cases. This part is just a complete fiction. When Alexander and Angelica met, she had actually already eloped with uh, her Englishman husband, John Church. She would eventually move to London with him. Elizabeth, though, the younger sister who went by Eliza, she and Alexander pretty much instantly hit it off and started writing letters to each other through which they advanced their courtship. Alexander and Angelica also hit it off in a different way. Their conversations, their letters tended to be more intellectual, more based on political rhetoric, whereas Alexander and Eliza's letters are a bit more lovey-dovey. He wanted someone like Eliza because he had genuine love and affection for her. Like, I really do believe that he loved her and he adored her. But he also saw himself as her teacher and really wanted to be able to mold her into someone different than the person she was. Mm -hmm. And the person she was was an extremely down-to-earth, calm, sweet person uh, with a great sense of humor. But she was not a sharp wit or a political thinker in the way that her older sister was. And he was, he really tried to like mold Eliza into Angelica to a certain degree. I think if he could have picked, he would have wanted some sort of perfect hybrid between the two of them. And he certainly tried. Um, and he can be really condescending and patronizing to Eliza in his letters in a way that he's just not with Angelica. He saw Angelica as a peer and he saw Eliza as someone who was... He, he was her guardian. Right. And, I mean, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I don't think Eliza was necessarily unhappy with the situation. But from where I'm sitting, it, it makes me sad because Eliza was an amazing person. And based on some stuff that happens later, I just wonder if he was ever able to really fully appreciate her before it was kind of too late. And he spent so much time focusing on, on Angelica and on these other women, you know, it's just, it's kind of a bummer. Uh, but he called Eliza and Angelica, quote, his brunettes, which <laughs> I imagine is omitted from the musical because the entire audience would just lean over and puke during the line. <laughs> Although, like, can you imagine a modern day husband or boyfriend trying to get away with worked in a song from sister? the band The Brunettes, which would yeah. have been nice. <laughs> Honestly, and yeah, I, I mean, can't imagine a modern husband or boyfriend doing that because yeah, I have a imagine, low opinion of men. Can you imagine them being like, oh, we love this? <laughs> I would be like, 
You cannot angle a threesome with <laughs> my sister, sir. We are not going to take a break, sir. <laughs> I mean, if you asked me if I could imagine Donald Trump being the Republican nominee for president a year ago, I would have said no. So I feel <laughs> like this situation. Drag that filthy man's filthy name into this happy place. <laughs> Um, so he and Eliza were married not that long after they met. Again, this is all happening basically parallel with all the George Washington stuff we were talking about. And also during this time, she became pregnant with their first child who would eventually be born a son named Philip after her father. After uh, the very decisive Battle of Yorktown, which mm-hmm. Alexander, he was finally allowed to be a commander by George Washington, who had really tried to keep him off the battlefield because he was so valuable as an orator, a writer, you know, a negotiator, all those things we talked about. Uh, he yeah. was finally allowed to be a commander. All that nerd shit he didn't he want was, to do anymore. Yeah, he wanted to beat up some nerds, was, British people, yeah. the ultimate nerds. The ultimate nerds. We can all agree. I mean, come on. If Samuel Seabury was any indication, uh, good grief. It's a walking wedding. And he was just a loyalist. He wasn't even an honest-to-God British person. Yeah. Well, that just goes to show. That was kind of him going out with a bang because shortly after the Battle of Yorktown, he left the army to um, be a part of Congress or what was basically the beginning formations of the Continental Congress. He tried to help discontented soldiers during this time because they were really becoming a huge problem. On the one hand, I can't blame them because they had these bonds from the government that were basically worthless and they were, you know, starving and destitute. On the other hand, you know, a bunch of armed military trained guys just like roaming the streets of your newly formed country uh, a huge problem to contend with in the early days of a nation or at any time. Right. <laughs> but perhaps most notably during this first Continental Congress, Alexander revised the Articles of the Confederacy. A big part of this was including writing about the separation of powers between the three branches of the government, the executive, legislative, and judicial branch. That was Alexander's idea, basically. So, although, I mean, he had advisors, but... Yeah, so that's cool. That's something. I mean, we're about to see in the next little chunk of things just how many things in this country he created, but it's hard to think of something more impactful than that. Right. So in 1783, he passed what was the equivalent of the New York Bar, and he was authorized to practice law in New York. He specialized in defending Tories and British subjects. Uh, one of his first notable big cases was defending these Englishmen who had uh, apparently like taken over a brewery to like install themselves in uh, to seek protection from the rebel soldiers. And while they were in there, they had like incurred some damage to the brewery. And Alexander successfully defended them, so they did not have to pay for that damage, which is just fascinating since he had just spent an entire war killing these people. I mean, these were actual British subjects, not loyalists. These were British English. And it sounds like they just kind of got drunk and refused to leave a bar to me, but more or less. He founded the Bank of New York in 1784, and it lasted until 2007 when it merged with another bank, so that makes it one of the longest-running and most successful banks in American history. I think it's now called uh, the Bank of New York Mellon, I believe is what it's called today. Yeah, we're hitting the part of, we're basically hitting the resume section of Alexander's Mm -hmm. biography because it's just, and I'm leaving tons of stuff out, but it's just, this is the highlights reel of all the incredible stuff he accomplished. Um... 
in the 1787 Continental Congress, uh, he kind of ran into some speed bumps with his idea that the president should rule for life, which Alexander thought the president should be able to rule for life with impeachment as a caveat. A president for life idea is a fucking terrible Mm. idea. I mean, that is... That's royalty, and we don't... I don't want no part of that. Um, (laughs) The most important part of his role in the uh, Continental Congress at this time was that he really had to fight against secession from a lot of the states. Uh, The Southerners who were slowly forming into the Democratic-Republican Party over these years, while Alexander and his allies were calling themselves the Federalists, Um, They really wanted to be able to bail at a moment's notice if they didn't like how, like, the Articles of Confederation came out and what amendments were added to the Constitution. They really wanted, like, that emergency exit button, and Alexander had to kind of do his best to keep everyone together. Um, That makes him sound like a troubled sitcom dad, but I kind of almost imagine it that way. Yeah, he sounds like Michael Bluth. (laughs) Yeah, he absolutely is the Michael Bluth. With a touch of like Lindsay Blue's love for things that are expensive and yeah, kind of he body. had that slut shirt that he wore around constantly. <laughs> oh, well, we'll get to his slut shirt. <laughs> Wait, worry. hold on, That's just hold on. Corner. In 1791, Philip Schuyler's seat was up, and Aaron Burr changed parties from Federalist to Democratic Republican and swept it right out from underneath Philip Schuyler and. For reasons I don't completely understand, besides, I guess, that Philip was in general his political ally, Alexander took this loss extremely hard, took it as an issue of personal honor, and this is really the beginning of the true rift between him and Burr, with whom he had never seen eye to eye, but he had always been able to kind of work alongside because they were in the same party and they were both intelligent and similar in many respects. And they had worked together as lawyers at least a Mm -hmm. few times. Yeah, so it's... I, I don't totally understand. The only thing I can think is that he really must have been close with Philip personally and as a political ally. Like, they must have had a stronger relationship than I've given them credit for. And, I mean, this is also part of the very early party system where it's not ideology sort of almost comes second to personal loyalties in a yeah. way, I sort of feel like. Yeah, and there's a lot of backstabbing and betrayals based on hurt feelings and people are dying for hurt feelings in these yeah. duels which are still a part it of the culture at kind the of time. the high school years of america really <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know high, high school, school duels years. and everything mm. based on 2016 uh well federalist papers uh, are published by madison jay and hamilton to defend the constitution Madison writes 29, Jay writes 5, and then gets sick, and then, except for number 64, which he collaborated on, he's pretty much out. And then, say it with me, folks, Hamilton Hamilton wrote wrote the the other 51. 51. How did we all know that? I don't know. It's not like there's a very catchy song. That was just strange. I don't know how that (laughs) occurred. Disc one, track 23, nonstop, Leslie Odom Jr. (laughs) My favorite song in the show. Well, at least one of them. Um... And each of the men wrote about their specific area of expertise, and the papers were very successful for the most part. Then Hamilton became the Secretary of the Treasury on uh, September 11, 1789. He would remain in that position until the very end of January of 1795. And he basically created 
the position. I mean, during this time, Washington's cabinet was still very nebulous and the roles were kind of being made up as everyone went along um kind of interesting though hamilton saw himself as like a prime minister to george washington's king which hamilton kind of wished george washington was the king let's be honest Mm. um he he loved washington very much and it's easy to see why because they were extremely simpatico and they relied on each other. But, and um, Washington was fond himself. of just telling people that he was their father now, according <laughs> to uh, Brian in the Marquis de Lafayette episode. That is true. I mean, it's it's true. It's true. And he was close with Eliza and Martha Washington were super close, which is really cool. It's like a first wives club. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, but he's never going to be president. No. True fact, I uh, thought that movie was about the president of wives when I was a little kid. <laughs> Wait, what? The wives of presidents. That would be the like president. Okay, the president of wives. Movie. It's a very... A the of, president of wives is a different... A bunch of first ladies like come together just to dish and to talk shit. I think one of the husbands in that movie famously played played like I think he was the dad on Clueless and he also played Richard Nixon on Dick wasn't that guy one of the husbands yes. yeah that's probably why I, yes. I associated that guy with Richard Nixon I was like oh must be it's president now, wives decided. different it, from sister even though wives. I wouldn't consider the secretary of the treasury to be like a prime minister Hamilton did give George Washington a lot of advice on issues outside of his department so to speak and so in Hamilton's case, it actually may have been a somewhat apt descriptor. And Washington sought out this advice. It wasn't, you know, offered unwanted. And he would continue to write things for him, including Washington's farewell address, which he was a contributing factor on, and which actually wasn't really known until uh, after his death when Eliza was able to produce papers that basically proved that he had helped draft that very, very famous address. The issue of abolition came up during this time, and Hamilton delayed it by a year, which, again, not a vote for him in terms of him being an abolitionist or him being good about being anti-slavery, but it, as horrifying as it, as it is to say, because human lives were hanging in the balance, from where Alexander was sitting, it was not only not feasible, but not the most pressing, it, pressing issue they had on hand, since they still had a lot of rogue soldiers who were basically ready to start a civil war, and they had no credit and, like, no manufacturing ability. And he kind of got all that off the ground. Uh, the whole idea of public credit created by the federal government assuming states' debts, which obviously Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, who was pretty much leading the Democratic-Republicans, was extremely against. Hamilton, during this time, established the U.S. Mint, advocated for neutrality Mm -hmm. in the issue of uh, Britain versus France, which, from a money perspective, was a smart issue, although obviously it felt like a slap in the face to his friend, the Marquis de Lafayette. Mm -hmm. And now I fast-forward us all the way to 1791. Aha, uh-huh. 1791 is the year of the beginning of the Reynolds Affair. Yes. And a quick note before we get into that. Let's, let me take you back to the West Indies for just a hot second, where young Alexander Hamilton was developing his writing skills. He wasn't just writing about politics and moving tragedies caused by natural disasters. <laughs> he was writing dirty limericks. He was writing pornography at times, basically. Yeah. Um, And 
Alexander had two types, two yeah. very distinct types, and it comes through extremely in his youthful writing and even later on. Uh, he liked women who were very like innocent and virginal. That would be like your Eliza. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he liked women who were... I'm trying to think of a chill way of putting this because Alexander certainly didn't have a chill way of putting it. <laughs> Coquettes, coquettish, uh, flirtatious, seductive, sultry, more experienced <laughs> in the ways of love. Uh, basically what I'm getting at is I don't use these words to describe women, but Alexander had a real virgin whore complex when it came sure. to women. And yes. you can read more and about to both. <laughs> Alexander's early porno writings in the podcast, My Founding Father Wrote a Porno. Now available on <laughs> iTunes. Oh. Mm. Oh, man. I hope people get that joke. That's an amazing podcast. My dad wrote a porno. Mm. <laughs> anyway. Uh, that's the name of a podcast. My dad did not write a porno, folks. He's oh, that you know of. Yeah, I mean... Shut up. <laughs> just don't you bring my father into this, sir. Um, oh, just anyway. getting a list of banned topics. So far, it includes Trump <laughs> and your father. That doesn't seem like such a bad proposition to me. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, to keep this. A we'll have to talk about both of those zone. on the next episode. This is going to be a two-parter at the length it's running. Um, (laughs) Reynolds came to Hamilton and said that she had been abandoned by her husband and she and her child were destitute and had no way of continuing on because they had no money. Uh, Obviously, that was, let's call it a trigger for Hamilton in a lot of respects, in part because of his own tragic childhood and the loss of his mother and being abandoned by his father, and also in part because... uh, not only did he believe in defending his honor, but he sort of had like an honor fetish. Like <laughs> he got off on being honorable. Yeah. And then a... things took a decidedly, a decidedly dishonorable turn when he started sleeping with Mariah Reynolds in her home and in his own, which is just completely disgusting. Mariah Reynolds was not as helpless as she seemed. We know from her letters now that uh, her and her husband were not as estranged as she claimed they were, and that it was actually a plot to extort money from Alexander, which was completely successful. They blackmailed him for a number of years, during which time Mariah continued to have her affair with him. And I do think that she developed genuine feelings for him, even though it started as a scheme, which would be a great premise for a rom-com, if not for the fact that Eliza is obviously the protagonist of this story. Right. And if you don't think so, you can fight me. Um, uh, she Mariah wrote these letters to him, and you honestly have to look them up in the Chernow book because it's hysterical. Like, oh, I'm just laying here in my pillows soaked with tears and I think I'll die because you stopped writing to me but it's fine I know you don't care what happens if I die and I'm so bad etc 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 and they just read like a 13 year old girl's like love note to her first boyfriend so yeah I have to believe based on their degree of patheticness that she (laughs) at least had some degree of genuine feeling for him. In the musical, it happens to be Jefferson, Madison, and Burr, a.k.a. Hamilton's three biggest frenemies who found out about 
uh, the Mariah Reynolds affair by looking through Hamilton's personal finances. But in actuality, it was three congressmen whose names I didn't write down because just besides the fact that they were the ones who discovered the Reynolds affair, they're not actually that important and their names are not memorable. Uh, but anyway, the point is he was found out and in order to make it to make sure that everyone knew that he hadn't been extorting money um, from the government, Hamilton actually self-published a pamphlet that went into pretty good detail over what the affair was and what had happened. Uh, on the one hand, it did clear him from the idea of any financial financial wrongdoing. On the other hand, it pretty much blew up his chances of ever being president, which is something that he probably definitely wanted to at least give a shot at. Mm-hmm. We're like barely post-Puritan days that people are never going to vote for someone who had a public sex scandal. Yeah. This was People weren't even going to vote for someone who had in sex. American history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hamilton is a bit of a bitter Betty from this point <laughs> on, let's say. <laughs> he did not get along with John Adams, who he thought was like too much of an emotional little whiny baby to be president. He didn't respect him completely. I mean, he was played by Paul Giamatti, so... I was going to say, John Adams definitely had the body of a baby. I'm kind of on Hamilton's side on this one. I'm not a big John Adams person. I know a lot of people like him because he was played by Mr. Feeney in the 1776 movie that is not good enough for me. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, to go on record as saying that I don't think 1776 is a good musical. Mm. So, ba-boom. Um... (laughs) Hamilton basically focused on blowing up his political enemies at this point because even though he was no longer really a political force himself in terms of running for and winning offices, he was still really respected as a writer and an orator by the people who, especially the Federalist Party, who really looked to him for what their opinion should be. And he pretty much just focused on fucking over Aaron Burr because he was still mad about him stealing the seat out from under Philip Schuyler. So uh, he campaigned against Burr in the uh, presidential election between Thomas Jefferson and Burr, which uh, Jefferson eventually won. At this time, whoever was runner-up and got the second most amount of votes was vice president, which is crazy, for the record. Um, I'm glad we don't do that anymore. And actually, it was Thomas Jefferson who was the one who was like, uh, no, Burr, I don't like you and I don't like your politics, so uh, you can pretty much fuck off because we're not going to do this anymore. And so Burr ran for governor in New York, and this is where Hamilton like really just did his best to completely sabotage Burr and campaign on behalf of his opponent. Basically just because, as he put it, when he was helping Jefferson campaign against Burr, Burr was the mischievous enemy of the American people. Mm, Yeah, he was the evil troll. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty (laughs) mild slam, I've got to say. It's somewhere between, like, in the right context, that could be something you call your significant other. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, enemy? Mischievous enemy? You gotta put the right spin on what, it. Locally. What sort of relationship is this? I don't know that this? I like your idea of relationships based on that. Fair enough. Before we get to the Burr and Hamilton duel, which is, of course, right around the corner because Burr could not let insults like this stand because of, you know, honor and all that jazz. It's worth noting that Hamilton was having a super rough time in his personal life during about this era, which may have also contributed to his disposition and 
the apparently kind of erratic at times and depressed at times way he was acting. His oldest son, Philip, was killed in a duel about two years prior to uh, the moment mm-hmm. of Hamilton and Burr's duel. And yeah, because it was horrible. It was horrible. Against some fellow who was trash talking his dad, because back then, if you trash talked somebody, uh, you got your card pulled. But now you might get banned from Twitter if it gets enough. <laughs> Maybe. There's no comparison between the things this man was saying about Hamilton and the disgusting things those people said about Leslie Jones. I wish I could make that comparison, but honestly, those people went so beyond the beyonds. I would rather have a pistol duel with someone than endure what that poor woman went through. Yeah. Honestly, if we still lived in an era where dueling was acceptable, I would volunteer to second Leslie Jones. Yeah, seriously. They can all fight me. No pistols needed. Fist to fist. (laughs) Fist to fist. Like how fighting... (laughs) In a thumb war. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. That sounds pleasant enough. Fist to fist in a thumb war. Anyway, Philip Hamilton passed away, and it was awful. Obviously, Hamilton at least partially blamed himself for a number of reasons, including that he had provided the gun for the duel to his son. Um, but oddly enough, this incredible tragedy did push Eliza and Alexander back together, and shortly after... Philip Hamilton, the first passing, they had another son who they named Philip Hamilton. As a replacement. Okay. That was actually a pretty common practice in those days, especially because children died a lot, uh-huh. and there were also like five names to pick yeah, up. Yes, exactly. We've As discussed, we've discussed a lot that. that there were only about five <laughs> names until uh, about, I think it was, was 1890. That's the only options they had. Well, the Industrial uh, Revolution, really. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. 1910, when uh, I think it was Apple introduced uh, mm-hmm. its new its iNames program, mm-hmm. added about 4,000 names to the roster. Pretty unusual, though, just because Philip was in his late teens when he died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time, if you're naming a child over, you're naming them after a child who died in infancy or died as a toddler. Right. To name your new baby after your adult son who passed away. What's unusual, even for the time, is my understanding. So make of that what you will. But from this point on, Hamilton was not totally acting like himself. His health was in decline, even though he was still relatively young. Uh, He kind of alternating between being somewhat erratic and somewhat depressed. And those two horrible factors kind of came together when Burr challenged him to a duel, uh, a pistol duel. They went across the river to New Jersey because dueling was not legal in New York, but it was legal in New Jersey. Everything's legal in New Jersey. Yes, of course. Nicely done. Got one in there. And what happens next is still in dispute to this day. It's another one of those things we'll never really know. Who shot first? We know that Hamilton's shot struck a branch over Burr's head, and we know that Burr's shot, which ended up mortally wounding Hamilton, uh, kind of ricocheted around his spine and ribs, which sounds like pretty much the most horrible pain I can imagine. Mm. Ron Chernow says that Hamilton shot first, either accidentally or purposely missing Burr by going over his head. He was like shielding his eyes from the sun and fixing his glasses before he shot. And witnesses do say it looked like 
whatever he was doing, he was aiming at something purposely. Mm-hmm. So because of the vision factor, we're not really sure if he took aim at Burr and missed and happened to hit above his head, or if he had been aiming for the branch as like a way of you know, trying to peacefully end the duel. Although, if you're going to fire your shot, you would think you would fire it straight into the air, Mm. not at a branch directly over someone's head. Well, I mean, this was a common dueling technique, and Alexander Hamilton, prior to the duel, talked to the people involved and let them know that he intended to throw away his shot on the field. But he also wrote in letters that he wasn't sure if that was the right thing to do because he still had responsibilities as a husband and a father. Philip Hamilton, the younger, was only two years old when his father died, you know, and Hamilton took those responsibilities seriously, and he also felt that he still had a lot to give to his country. So I'm not saying Hamilton didn't throw away his shot. He very well may have. It's just still in dispute. Absolutely. Um, Another pretty reputable biographer, James Cooks, says that Burr shot first and Hamilton shot accidentally as he fell back, which from the angle that the branch was hit isn't an outlandish possibility, but Hamilton was offered by friends before the duel a pistol that would go off very easily that had like a hair trigger, and he purposely refused that pistol to stick with one that was much harder to fire. So that to me makes it seem like Cook's theory is unlikely if he had purposely elected to take a pistol that wasn't going to go off with a hair trigger. Right. So make it that way you will. Uh, unfortunately, the result remained the same. Uh, Hamilton knew that he was mortally wounded, but they did manage to get him back across the river to New York, to Greenwich Village, to a friend's house. His family and friends arrived, including both Eliza and Angelica. It took a long time. It took a long time, and he suffered a lot. It gives me no pleasure to tell you that I think he was trying to hang on so he could say as many goodbyes as possible but it was rough and he passed away and besides all the amazing establishments that he left our country he left behind eight children like I said the youngest of whom was two years old or I guess one had passed away at that point he left behind seven children Uh, and I would argue that his greatest legacy of all lived on in the form of his wife who continued to advance his political agenda in a way that was really almost unheard of for a woman in that time. Mm -hmm. I think maybe besides someone like Abigail Adams, who was very involved, Eliza fought for abolition. She, as we all know from the song that we sob through, she established the first private orphanage. Um, She went through all of Alexander's writing and was able to prove that he was the one who wrote the farewell address of Washington, among other things. And she's basically the reason he has a legacy at all, because his reputation had been so trashed by Adams and by Jefferson uh, that he, if you go to Washington, D.C., there's not a lot of Hamilton stuff to see because when they were building it, they just didn't have a lot of respect for him and his accomplishments. There's a statue of someone else outside the Treasury. Hamilton's statue is in the basement. Hmm. Yeah, that's... But he lives on in an amazing musical, the most popular musical of all time, actually. Well... You can take that to the bank. Ha ha. You can take it to the bank that he established. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Shannon, thank you. You're welcome, guys. I tried to get through that as fast as I could. I I mean, there is so much to get through. For me, most of Hamilton's life is unassailable. And any alternate history really has to focus on a prominent character in his orbit. So we'll go back to 1767 as Hamilton lay desperately ill next mm-hmm. to his mother. And uh, in the middle of the night, February 17th, 
Uh, Hamilton awoke to the sight of an incredibly large figure standing at his bedside. I'm assuming Hagrid. Rubius Hagrid, keeper of the keys and grounds at Hogwarts. No, of course. <laughs> Creepy that Zach and I made the same. Hagrid is, is of course, fictional, you nerds. Um, <laughs> this was Hagrid, an original <laughs> character. <laughs> this was Hagrid. He's, re- he's real to me. Just change the vowel. Real if I believe. <laughs> the figure held out a clammy hand with a note in it, and the note read, Hammy. Don't be scared. I represent the Society of Knowledgeable Youth and Newly Emigrated Technocrats, or Skynet. I have have sent this unit to help you. It is called the Ham 800. Stay with him if you want to live. And it was signed with the initials LM. So just going forward, I'm going to picture this mysterious character as John Ham to save... Sure. Time and for my own convenience, Ooh. because that's, that's yeah, how I would prefer. It's really, never like I picture burden to picture John Ham. You know? Most of the time, I am picturing John Ham. We really debated making the cover image of this podcast a picture of John Ham. We didn't. <laughs> I gotta. I have to fix that. Um, John Ham wearing a monocle, so it's historical. Right, exactly. John Ham wearing a toga. John Ham wearing nothing at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anywho, Ham Eight Hundred gives Hamilton a file of medicine. And he takes it, and immediately his fever starts to break, but it's too late to save his mother. So a little bit about the Ham 800. Ham 800 was built in the year 2017. Sure. I was called that because it was made, made out of 800 pieces of honey-baked ham. Well, that's next year, Brian. Oh, that is next year. Uh, between now and next year, ham technology advances greatly. So we went from the ham radio to sophisticated robots? Yep, basically. Great. Um, the ham radio not being made out of ham, I should say. Oh, is this made out of ham? Yes, 800 pieces of honey baked, to be specific. Ham 800 uh, is programmed to defend and assist Alexander Hamilton, and he sticks by his side throughout the Revolutionary War. But Hamilton is so devoted to maintaining his honor and his integrity that he refuses to allow the Ham 800 to do much other than, you know, take light dictation essentially, and working as a spy at British dinner parties where he would lay down at the table uh, as a smorgasbord of ham and eavesdrop on their conversations. Oh, sure. (laughs) Natural camouflage. I'm actually... I have to interject. I'm loving this alternate history where a robot helps Hamilton out because one of the complaints against Hamilton the musical I've seen online is, uh, this musical is promoting the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps narrative. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, how dare he? How dare he not inherit money from his father? How dare he not get help from anyone right. and pull himself up from his bootstraps? Lin-Manuel is disgusting for telling us this story. So I'm glad that Hamilton is finally getting some help. I couldn't stand him doing it all by himself. Right, Ugh. exactly. What a conservative drag. Uh, and to be fair, the problem with the pull yourself up by your bootstraps narrative isn't that it never happens. It's that it happens just enough that people buy into it, mm. I feel like. Absolutely. I'm not saying, like, everybody, you have all the supplies you need right at your feet. Bend down and pull yourself no, up by your bootstraps. No, that is what you're saying. We all know that you are a strong Randian. <laughs> who's Same sick of the parasites. <laughs> oh, God. No, don't even joke about that. <laughs> Makes my skin All right, I'll add off. it to the list of forbidden topics. All right, put it on board. Yeah, I'm just really, my whole guesting role on this podcast is primarily just to boss Zach. <laughs> I was made to understand that would be my main duty. Yeah, Zach's handler. And then Zach says, yes, dear. <laughs> uh, like the sitcom on CBS, Wednesdays <laughs> at 6. Sure. Like the hilarious sitcom on oh, right. There, no such thing. Um, 
<laughs> so despite not allowing the Ham 800 much power, uh, Hamilton and the Ham 800 became friends. The Ham 800 was there for, you know, Hamilton's, his deliberation, his crises, and his triumphs. And after John Lawrence died, Hamilton never really became that close with anyone else, other than, of course, the Ham 800. So, did this thing, like, sleep in a closet? Did it smell in the summer? Eventually, it grew did to it smell. Did do the sort of things for him that <laughs> Lawrence used to do for him? Uh, Just between men? As, men sharing each other's strength? I mean, of course, sometimes, yes, you see a giant ham robot, you're like, yeah, I might have sex Especially with that. Especially one shaped like John Ham. <laughs> exactly, of course. Mm, it smells so enticing. <laughs> Just like ham. Of course. Spiral sliced, <laughs> yes, please. Mm-hmm. Um, Is it honey baked? Honey baked indeed. Uh, Honey, you're bone in. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Anyway, but Ham 800 was programmed to defend Hamilton from his enemies, and Hamilton had more than his share because of his background and his nature of being very outspoken. But there was one enemy hiding right under their noses. Uh, model A. Ron Burr. A, yeah, I was going to say, is there a robot made out of burrs from, like, boots? No, that it's is... So that is a spur, because it's burrs. That is something else. You definitely else. can't have sexual relations with the burr. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Burbot was balding, and by all accounts, kind of gross. Um, he was more advanced than the Ham 800, because he was made out of liquid ham. Or, like, some kind of pate, maybe. Um, Hot ham water. <laughs> exactly. It's water with just Mac a of ham, ham to it. <laughs> Uh, and he was just talking about like spam at this point. <laughs> a spam? It was the first spam bot. Wow. <laughs> oh he was a Nigerian gosh, prince. I'm hanging up. <laughs> um, he was programmed to undermine and destroy Hamilton, uh, as well as just be kind of a general dick sometimes. He was a tool of a secretive cabal of Yella Nerduels colon extermination team or Skynet. Um, okay. A different one. Also, Cabal was spelled with a K at this point. Uh, is this in any way related to Kabbalah Monster? No. I, what is that? I don't know. What that is. Oh, it's just a 30 Rock thing. Jenna says she started doing Kabbalah, that she's praying to Kabbalah Monster. <laughs> but of course, Aaron Burr wasn't the only enemy that the Ham 800 had to contend with. Mm. Because eventually, uh, over the course of their friendship, Alexander Hamilton confessed to the Ham 800, the Reynolds affair, and of course the eventual blackmail and extortion he was submitting to. And this confused the Ham 800's programming. You know, I don't know why Alexander couldn't be happy with his wife and his sex ham robot. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tale as old as time. How many people do you need? (laughs) I'm not going to get into it. Um, So the Ham 800 is confused and alarmed by this continual self-destructive behavior. And so the Reynolds pamphlet was not written by Hamilton. It was written by the Ham 800 as a way to end the affair and end the extortion. Does Hamilton feel betrayed? Hamilton feels very betrayed. I don't know why my voice cracked right then. Um, Because a friendship, a powerful, beautiful friendship, and maybe more, between a man and a robot is dissolving. I don't blame you. This is like the end of the Iron Giant. Exactly. It's very much like the end of the Iron Giant. But it's sadder. It's like that, but it's. It's almost more heroic. Hamlet was voiced by Vin Diesel, though. I don't think you mentioned that. Yes, that's true. Um, So this causes a rift. Between Hamilton and the Ham 800. Sure. Uh, but the Ham 800 remains devoted to Hamilton and sort of mm. secretly watches over him over the following years. 
uh, he even gets a job. Uh, one of the things we glossed over is that Hamilton was the founder of the New York Post, which is probably one of its more disreputable achievements. And the Ham 800 got a job delivering papers sure. for the New York Post. Oh, he just wants to earn a little pocket change. Exactly. So he can have some fun on the weekends with his and friends. And just I feel like connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and now he's a... here's the entire plot to Newsies. Starring the <laughs> ham robot. <laughs> and we're going to sing all the songs. You thought you were free once we got through the Hamilton summer. You thought you were free of Hamilton songs. No. Now we move on to Santa Fe. Uh, anyway, that was... I am editing out my singing. Great. Um, no, I like that. Oh, well. I didn't. Of course, the Ham 800 was fired from his Asshole. from his paperboy job when he kept delivering people's papers soaked through with ham grease. And the New York Post headline following this was, uh, Ham Droid Gets Cheesed, uh, because it was just an excuse to come up wow. with the New York Post headline. Kind of a sting, because didn't Hamilton start the New York Post? He could have had some input. Well, he wasn't like the editor at that mm. point, I think. Um, and so anyway, well... The Ham 800 is focused on defending Hamilton. Um, model A. Ron Burr is continually focused on his destruction. And over the course of time, after A. Ron Burr sets up a shell company, a shell water company in New York that fails to deliver a sewer system, but establishes a bank almost exclusively for Republicans and, you know, challenging Philip Schuyler and running for... So there was also... Okay, I would say there's also the Republican Party during this time. Democratic Republicans, but... In this alternate... I would say this alternate universe, because there was a, a, the ham bot, it actually changed the course of politics so much that the Republican Party started this Yes, early. of course. I like that better. I like to think that ham bot was that influential. <laughs> it's like a, the butterfly effect. Exactly. Yep, Ashton Kutcher. And that other guy who is not Ashton Kutcher, who's in Butterfly Effect. No. Um, we all know. You don't, don't need to say his name. It. Everybody knows it. <laughs> Character actor <laughs> McGee. Eldon Henson. That is some quick IMDBing if that's actually his name. I have no way of confirming that. I didn't Google it. It came into my mind. Oh, wow. Slowly. Um, yeah. Anyway. I watched Daredevil. <laughs> oh, is he in Daredevil? Over the course of time, model Aaron Burr seizes opportunity and challenges Alexander Hamilton to a duel. Ham 800, hearing about this, his instinctive programming to defend Hamilton kicks in. So, Ham 800 follows them out to Weehawken, New Jersey, uh, the site of the duel, and Hamilton has already sort of talked about his decision to likely throw away his shot on the field of honor, and as they are setting up for the duel, who should Hamilton see in the high ground behind Aaron Burr but Ham 800, Hmm. raising a pistol to that back of Burr's head. And Hamilton... Dishonor. Dishonor, exactly. Hamilton is still so committed to his honor, he knows what will happen, after telling people he's going to throw away his shot, and what happens if Aaron Burr is shot by a friend of his during the duel. So Hamilton raises his pistol, not to the sky, not to aim at a tree, not to aim at Burr, and he shoots a bullet through the head of Ham 800, and model Aaron Burr shoots and kills Alexander Hamilton. A real iRobot. <laughs> yep. It's a real I've AI artificial movie. intelligence. <laughs> Okay, I have seen that movie, and that movie is about 300 times more traumatizing <laughs> than the story you just told. Oh, <laughs> uh, and of course, cut to the year 2016, a group of young people, upon leaving a showing of Hamilton, an American musical, formed the Society of Knowledgeable Youth and newly emigrated technocrats, and a bunch of angry white people on the internet formed the secretive cabal 
of Yella Ne'er-Do-Wells colon extermination team. It's weird they would call themselves Yella? Well, I mean, they're self-aware. Okay. Or maybe it was ironic. I don't know. This is the also, new... Also, it's 2016, so they're both insulting themselves and using Old West insults. Yeah. Fair enough. And that is a shade of the alternate history of Alexander Hamilton. I'm, I'm sorry I went quiet for so long. I was actually sobbing so hard that I couldn't speak, so I turned my microphone off. I hope that's Of okay. course, it was a waste of ham. So, Zach... Oh, yeah, I was actually so dried up from all that salty ham that I could barely produce <laughs> uh-huh. this, but I was sobbing all the same. Oh, that, that is, of course, to eat so much ham you get dried out. This is the American dream. <laughs> Zach, you are judging for this episode. Okay, so there's a couple of considerations. One, that was by far the most thorough actual history we've ever had on this show. By a mile. Yeah. I'm passionate about this stuff. Exactly. Sincerely. Well, that's why we wanted you for this topic. I'm also, I'm slightly concerned. It's been a while, I feel like, since an alternate history one. So that is something I'm thinking about. But one issue I do have is that so far during revolutionary times, we have a Benjamin Franklin robot powered by Cephalus. Mm-hmm. We have a Valley Forge, another Terminator robot that came oh, yeah. back to try and kill George Washington. Yeah, I mean, Terminators are a prop- popular tool. And was prevented, I think, by Baron von Steuben from doing so. Mm-hmm. Oh, see, I get the joke. Ben Franklin powered by syphilis instead of actually being powered by lightning. Like, he was in real life. Right, really of course. Well, no, in real life, he was a robot powered by syphilis. Yes. The cannon has pushed. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just worried. I am very sassy. That the revolutionary times, the cup br- uh, brimmeth too full. That's not a saying. Um, <laughs> The bell tolls for us. Yes, yeah, exactly. I think that I think that perhaps we have we have many birds in the hand. Too many robots already stomping around the American Revolution. That we I don't know if we need two more. One made out of ham. Both made out of ham. One made out of liquid ham. Oh right, yeah. One made out of spam and one made out of ham. <laughs> I was picturing him the whole time as like a giant hedgehog made out of birds. <laughs> birds, like the plant birds. I pictured kind of a nice pate. Yeah, just because I think we've hit the robot well one too many times in the accepted histories. And I'm excited. I'm, I'm actually kind of sad because I'm really excited to get back to bringing alternate histories back to the fold. And because the uh, original history was so robust and mm-hmm. well-researched, I might have to go with the... OG history on this particular well, one. Well, to be fair, you cannot spell robust without robot. Mm, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> I mean, well, some of the letters in robots. Uh, well, Shannon, I totally agree. Congratulations. Thank you. Once again, I just nerded my way through a situation and somehow came out on top. I don't know how this keeps mm. happening and why I'm not beaten up on a more regular basis. Wait, more, you know more regular? <laughs> I mean, I spend time with a uh, toddler and a very small child daily, and they are pretty rough and tumble, so <laughs> they don't beat me up for being a nerd. They beat me up just for sport, so it's better, um, but thank you so much. It was so much fun being on, and I hope I wasn't too pedantic, but I, I really think that Alexander Hamilton's story is amazing. I didn't know that much about him, uh, although I do remember him being one of my preferred figures in American history class during the Revolutionary time and always taking his side over Jefferson's Mm -hmm. because I still think Jefferson is 
a bit of a turd, mostly because he owned slaves. Yeah, Jefferson anyway, was one of the bigger uh, turds. Also, my personal politics are more in line with Hamilton's, but I think like a lot of people, I didn't know this much about him, not in this much detail, until after the musical came out, and I would really recommend Ron Chernow's book to anyone. It's, yeah, it's thick, but you can sort of take it in chunks. You know, there are so many different fascinating eras of his mm-hmm. life, and they're all so different from each other uh but he never really changes at all like he he was a very stubborn person so yeah i would say uh i recommend that book before we go uh listeners uh you can visit our website to leave us a comment or ask us a question that's revisionistpodcast.com uh also like us on facebook follow us on twitter and if you have time and the inclination please review the podcast on itunes we're about like 45 or 50 reviews right now which is amazing mm. and nice. uh also a quick thank you to uh everyone who subscribed to the podcast because i've checked the numbers and they've about doubled in two months it was because that great uh piece that was published of by course byron thank you again and um all that, well more details on this later but um we are going to be hosting a live event for a bunch of denver podcasts monday october 3rd at syntax physic opera uh, so come check that out. We're lining up the guests right now. We've got a few people I really, really love on there. It's going to be an amazing show. So come check that out. More details to come on that. And before we go, Shannon, uh, the listeners can find your writings, uh, your acting work, your other podcasts at shannon-camp.com. Yeah, it's Shannon and then a hyphen and then my last name, camp.com. Pretty simple. I keep all my podcast guest appearances and stuff on there as well as the acting and writing projects that I'm working on here in Chicago. I I wish I could, uh, you know, plug Zach and I's podcast Stage of Fools, which actually will not return until December, but that gives you a few months, uh, if you haven't already listened to it, to catch up on the back catalog and hear us kind of try to untangle this incredibly tangled and stupid web of drama and deceit that is e-television networks the royals Uh and uh that's camp with an e by the way i feel like it's worth clarifying yeah i figured they would see it in the written podcast description like i trust people to be able to read but it does have an e on the end that's absolutely because i'm fancy Uh, as for me listeners uh sunday august 14th I will be at Comedy Works South in the Denver Tech Center at 7 o'clock, so come check that out. Uh, But I think that does it for this incredibly stuffed episode Mm. of the podcast. Shannon, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, Before I forget, quick shout out to my friends Arnon and Zohar. They're two of the biggest Hamilton fans I know, and they help me get ready and get excited for this podcast appearance. So... Thanks to them, and thanks to you guys. I had an absolute blast. All right. For everyone here at The Revisionist, I'm Brian Flynn. I'm Zach Powers. Have a good time. 